HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Today we have a great show. We're going to be starting off the new year, 2022, with a program about food waste, because chances are we probably wasted some food over the holidays. What do you think, huh? So my guest today is Emily Broad-Lieb. She is a clinical professor of law, a faculty director of the Harvard Law School Food Law and Policy Clinic, and deputy director of the Harvard Law School Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation. As the founder of the Harvard Law School Food Law and Policy Clinic, Emily launched the first law school clinic in the nation devoted to providing clients with legal and policy solutions to address the health, economic, and environmental challenges facing our food system. Emily's work has been covered in such media outlets as the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, The Guardian, Time, Politico, and The Washington Post. She has appeared on CBS This Morning, CNN, The Today Show, and MSNBC, and now today she is appearing on Heritage Radio Network. How do you like them apples? Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Katie. How chuffed I am to have someone with such an illustrious CV appearing on my humble show and on the Heritage Radio Network. It's really, it is actually great to have, um, you know, have you on here to talk about food waste, which strangely enough has been a topic. I do another radio show in Rhode Island where I am based. And my last show of 2021 was also around food waste and, um, uh, you know, many of the issues that we're going to discuss today. So I feel quite well prepared for this, amazingly enough, which isn't always the case. Um, But anyway, let's jump right into it. So you and several of your colleagues uh, wrote a chapter on food loss or food waste, I guess, in a new book called The Economics of Food Loss in the Produce Industry. This is a wonky textbook, obviously, people, um, not something that everybody is going to be uh, seeing in their local bookstore. Um, But in any case, your work in this chapter focused on the role of policy, that is governmental policy, in food loss or food waste. And most of the listeners here are aware, because I've talked about it before, that the U.S. uh, alone wastes at least uh, 40% of the food produced in this country. So, Break down for us what the primary drivers of food waste are from a policy perspective. In other words, what could, how can policy address this? 
Great. Well, thank you so much again. I'm really glad to be having this conversation. There's a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, as you kind of alluded to, we're wasting a ton of food in the U.S. Really, it's a global issue. And um, one thing that's been interesting in my work is having the chance to both look at it from the U.S. perspective. And then we're also doing a comparative project globally where we're really comparing laws in different countries on food waste and food recovery and food donation. Oh, very good. Um, so the thing that's really interesting is policy plays a really big role for a few reasons. One is that food is really heavily regulated. Um, you know, especially here in the U.S., when we go to the store, we expect that what we're buying is safe. Mm -hmm. And that's because there's really detailed and deep regulations um, on production, transport, distribution, sale. Um, so the problem is that sometimes uh, it's really confusing what you can do with food that you can't sell. Are you allowed to donate it? Is it safe? Will you right. be liable if someone, you know, if, if someone, God forbid, were to get sick? Um, also, law can act as a disincentive um, because it is actually more costly to donate food um, in order to kind of comply with all those restrictions. Um, and then I think on the positive side, policies can provide incentives or drive changes in habit if we make it the more cost-effective solution to recover food or donate it or divert it away from a landfill, um, you know, that those are kind of decisions that policy can make. And I think we're seeing really kind of exciting, innovative things going on, both when we look around the a country and then when we look around the globe with government really playing with some of the opportunities in all of these areas. Very interesting. So, you know, can you give us an example of a law uh, that um, would incentivize uh, corporations, grocery stores, manufacturers, whatever, um, to besides, say, a tax break? Are there laws that would incentivize them or is that still on the drawing board? Yeah, I mean, um, I would say there the the, hmm, the most comprehensive incentive we're seeing is at the U.S. at the federal level, there is a really great tax deduction for food donors. Okay. But I, I think states are really experimenting with adding on to that with like tax credits, for example, for farmers. Uh -huh. So one thing we know is about 20% of the food wasted in the U.S. comes directly from farms, which is really frustrating. We saw this even more so the last few years with COVID that a lot of food was just getting like left and wasted on farms. And that's often food that's really, um, you know, healthy, fresh, it would be great to get it to people, especially people who aren't able to afford all of their meals who are food insecure. Um, but most farmers don't actually use the federal tax deduction because it's not really well suited for them. Um, you know, deductions are really good for people who make a lot of money. If you're yeah. living at the margins, like most farmers are, a deduction isn't a great tool. So we've seen states really jumping in and saying, how can we create a tool that create that that has an incentive that's really better suited for, for farms? Um, and then I think we're seeing in, in you know, in other countries, um, lots of different you know, even if there's not an opportunity to provide money back to companies, there's things like recognition incentives. So, um, you know, the U.S. has tried this as well with things like Champions 2030 and the U.S. Food Loss and Waste, um, uh, you know, Food Recovery Program, that there's opportunities to really recognize businesses that are doing a good job in this space. And I do think that as consumers and as the general public gets more concerned with this, some of those recognitions really can help people drive, um, you know, making decisions on where they're spending their dollars too. 
Absolutely. So let's let's expand for a minute on the labeling laws, because um, I think uh, I've certainly read in multiple places that uh, the confusion around the labels that you see on supermarket items, best buy, sell by, use before, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I can't even think of how many iterations, but I know there must be half a dozen at least. Um, and those are very confusing. And people, you know, in fact, I had a conversation just the other day with a friend um, who said, oh, I hadn't been in my house for a couple of weeks because I was traveling for the holidays. And he, I was putting milk in my tea. And he said, do you know that's still good? You know, look at the label. The label was like December 13th or something. And I was like, yes, it's perfectly fine. Because frankly, most of these laws around, you know, it's it's more the sniff test than anything else that tells you whether or not your milk is spoiled or your cream. Um, but but those labeling laws are, are cause people to discard a lot of perfectly viable food. And I, I wanted you to deconstruct a little bit, um, first of all, what the definitions of those terms are and who makes those determinations. And uh, upon what are they based? Like, how does a how does a dairy company, you know, how does say uh, Hood Dairy uh, say, okay, uh, this batch of milk is going to expire by December thirty first, and so therefore people are instructed to throw it out, or that yogurt, or whatever it is. Um, how how do they arrive at those decisions? Yeah, I'm glad you raised this one because this is really the like the issue I've worked on the longest in food waste. It's what mm -hmm. got me into this space. Um, and it still drives me crazy. So first <laughs> you said, you said, you know, how many of these terms are there? Walmart actually a couple years ago did a study of this and they found that there were more than 47 different oh date labels God. being used on products in Walmart, which is crazy. I can't even, if you, it's like a party game, try to list 47 possible labels <laughs> yeah, you right. can put on food. Like, I don't even know if you can. Yeah. Um, but I think that the real issue is um, that, you know, first, there's really no regulation on what those different terms mean. So it's really hard as a consumer to know what you're looking at. And that's the first piece. The second piece, I think, is that um, the majority of consumers think that these labels relate to safety, but actually almost all of those labels are really related to freshness and quality. So it's, you know, companies sort of saying, um, we want to give an indicator to people based on, you know, the best companies are doing some like shelf life tests and they're, you know, trying out when does this still taste good. Um, in some cases, companies are really just sort of taking a stab in the dark because they don't have the resources to do any real testing and they're kind of picking a date on them. But for the most part, it's really meant to indicate here's when we think this food is going to taste its best. Um, and this is really frustrating. So because there's no national laws or standards for these in the U.S., right. all of these different states have jumped in. And this was my first research on in the food waste realm was really documenting that. What we found was that 41 states require date labels on different foods and 20 states actually restrict sale or donation past the date. Wow. Um, and they make, you know, they're all over the place. I mean, no two states have the same law. So clearly they're really not based on science. Right, right. And clearly someone needs to come in, step in and standardize um what those terms are and how to use them. And then also I'm thinking, Frank, from the point of view of a manufacturer or a food producer, they too are kind of at the mercy of this stuff in a way, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, their product is, I mean, say uh, you make a canned good and it's a sell by or a best buy, you know, 1990, you know, 2027. Um, and now it's 2028. Does that mean that that canned good needs to be discarded? No, not necessarily. I mean, if you're someone like yes. me and you and you 
and you you look through your pantry periodically and realize that you have stuff that's like three years old, you know, maybe it's not going to taste the best it could, but it's still wholesome. And that's, I think, a big problem for manufacturers as well as consumers. Yeah. So- and Canvas is a funny one because there, I, I remember reading a study where they had a taste test of consumers eating food that was like canned foods that they had passed 20 years ago. And consumers actually thought they tasted better than canned food that was made yesterday. <laughs> so, you know, it's like a good wine, you know, that canned food actually might be getting tastier with age. But that's- I think, you know, it's, it is past time for, this is like the, the, one of the most solvable issues, I think. And, and in now the global research we've done, we found more than I, you know, even realized the U.S. really stands alone in not having any um, federal law really regulating those labels. So what most countries are really moving towards and what I think we and lots of partners in the U.S. have pushed for is that there be one standard label on food that is labeled for those like quality and freshness reason. So, um, and industries actually, a lot of the big companies have gotten behind this and are kind of supporting this, at least in a voluntary way, but having the label best if used by for food where, you know, it'd be nice if you eat it before the date, they promise it will taste good, but after the date, there's no risk. And then having one standard label of use by, for a food where you really should be careful. And I think the issue is that like on both sides of the coin there, um, people don't know what they're looking at. So people, you you know, you may actually eat some food past the date that is in that small handful of foods where there's sort of more of a risk. It's things like um, deli meats, like prepared Definitely. food, right. and then any unpasteurized dairy. Those are things where, you know, where the date out after the date. Yeah. The date actually means something. Yeah. It's a real thing. And you can't, I mean, uh, deli meats, for example, I, I rarely eat them. Um, but you know, often, you know, that it's past its prime because it becomes literally slimy. We've yeah. all experienced mm-hmm. that, you know, or it develops an off odor or whatever, you know, then, you know, common sense will tell you, I, I, I'm not going to eat that. Um, but, uh, you know, not everybody, you know, even really notices that, you know, you're in a hurry, slap something together, you're putting a sandwich together for your kid or whatever, your husband or your wife, uh, you know, whatever. It's it's not, it, it, it does need, that's the kind of thing I agree that people really need to, to pay attention to. But so, so policy, let's talk about policy in the realm of labeling. So if we, if government and, you know, for all the Republicans out there who want government out of your business, I'm sorry, uh, this is an, <laughs> this is one place like COVID, uh, where you probably should listen to the government. Um, but you know, this is, uh, Jesus, what happened here? Um, where, where policy has, has a role, what other types of, uh, you know, situations can you imagine? Show tell us some other places, for example, where that, that would make sense, Mm -hmm. uh, to have policy involved in reclaiming food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, again, date labeling to me is sort of the low hanging fruit. And in fact, um, refed, which is an organization that does a lot of, uh, kind of um, bringing together folks around food waste, but also data collection on what are the most promising, you know, opportunities for change. They found that changing date labels is one of the most cost-effective ways to reduce food waste because it costs almost nothing. Right. Um, but you know, again, now that all these states have different requirements, it really would re- need an act of Congress or federal agencies to standardize. Um, A couple others, I mean, one big one, and this isn't that many people's radars, I think, is that uh, our food safety laws 
in this country, both at the federal and at the state level, almost don't even mention food donation anywhere in them. I would say almost, um, you know, there are a very small handful of states that now have added some language on food donation to their to their food safety laws. So if you are a business and you have, let's say, some, um, you know, leftover like ingredients that you usually put into your um uh, uh, I don't know, let's say your pizza, you have extra sauce or something like that. Right. There's no, there's nowhere to get an answer as to, can I donate this? Do I need it to be labeled? What labels does it require? Um, you know, it, we've, we're making, uh, companies do a ton of guesswork. So there's both this question of, is this safe? Does it meet all the rules? And then there's a big question of protection in terms of, um, you know, many businesses say the top reason they don't want to donate is because they're afraid that they might get sued if someone gets sick. Right. Um, so they're, these are kind of two sides of a coin. They're, they're a little bit different. One is, you know, am I going to be um, get like a, a citation from my health inspector? And the other is, am I going to end up in court? And I think on, on both sides of those, there's there's a lot of outstanding questions. Um, on the liability protection side, actually, the U.S. has a really strong protection in place, but there's uh, it's been in place for a really long time. And still, despite having it around for more than 20 years, um, more than half of food businesses say that they still don't donate because they don't they don't feel like they're going to be protected. They don't understand the law. They don't know about it. And uh-huh. we've not done a great job of raising awareness. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. But <clears throat> I want to move on a little bit because um, so there are some states, uh, as when I was doing my research for the show, Maine, California, New York, Rhode Island, and others, um, and California especially has just come out with a very robust new law, uh, have enacted some new legislation aimed at cutting food waste. And I wondered if you could um, explain what some of those initiatives uh, that have either been proposed or have been enacted uh, that you feel are going to be effective in curbing food waste. The one in California is particularly, they have now outlawed, as I understand it, um, food waste at the grocery store level. Did I did I interpret that correctly? Yeah. So I, I'm glad you asked this. I mean, this has been, I think, one of the most exciting kind of trends in, in you know, where policy can really drive change. So what we're seeing is now a number of states, about eight different states and probably a dozen municipalities actually have restrictions on sending food to the landfill. Um, So you named a couple of them and maybe, you know, to give those as examples. um, So I think you said, uh, well, California is a great example, as you mentioned, they've had in place for some time um, a, a they were promoting that they wanted businesses to create relationships to divert more food to compost and or uh, anaerobic digestion. In this new um, law that was just implemented, which was called SB 1383, they actually now are going to require that California recover 20% of edible food that would otherwise be sent to landfills by 2025. There's a whole bunch of other elements of this law. It actually isn't only focused on food waste. It's all about you know, a range of different ways to address short-lived climate pollutants. Um, uh-huh. But part of this is that, you know, jurisdictions around California have to establish food recovery programs. They have to strengthen existing food recovery networks. Um, and then food businesses like grocery stores and others have to arrange to create contracts with food recovery organizations where they're going to regularly donate surplus food that's edible to those um, so this is this is like pretty amazing. I mean, it's you know just at the beginning of implementation. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. 
Um, a couple other states more here in kind of New England have also implemented different kinds of organic waste bans. Um, so, for example, here in Massachusetts, there's a requirement that businesses um, throughout the state must, if they're not allowed to send more than one ton of food waste to the landfill per week. And actually, the state just reduced that to be a half a ton per week. So now wow. a whole bunch of other businesses are going to be captured under that. Unlike some other states in Massachusetts, there's no exemption based on distance from a um, diversion facility. So a handful of states that have passed these have said, well, if you're close to like a compost facility, then you really have to do it. But if you're more than 10 miles or more than 15 miles away, we'll let you keep sending it to the landfill. And when Massachusetts put their law into effect, they said, no, we want to drive the creation of more food recovery entities, more composting facilities, et cetera. And by showing that all businesses now need to get food out of the landfill, that's going to really drive more development of these entities. And and just to, to veer off topic so slightly, and this is why I do an outline, Emily, because it's really hard for me to stay focused. <laughs> A little bit of an ADD type of interviewer here. Um, but, but these are business, if you think about it, these can be business opportunities. So mm -hmm. say you're a guy who wants to start a new business and you, you know, you have, you get an SBA loan, you, you buy a truck and you can ride around picking up people's waste, right? And then, and you're the one who drives it the 30, 40 miles to the composting facility or the food bank mm -hmm. or the whatever mm -hmm. it is, or, or you're somebody who has some land and you can develop a big composting facility. These are, so in a way, these are our business opportunities to reclaim oh, food as well as, you know, having that, you know, pat yourself on the back, feel good kind of thing to it. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of money <clears throat> that when, when a state implements a program such as what you just described in Massachusetts, where, you know, you don't have an option to not uh, deal with your food waste in some responsible way. So, uh, will states, uh, is there money in a state budget to help a business absorb those costs? Uh, or will they be, you know, somehow raising money or I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the mechanisms would be to encourage entities to be more responsible with food waste and reclaim food. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if that is something that you've looked at in your studies, um, whether or not state budgets are beginning to start allocating uh, financial resources towards food reclamation. Mm -hmm. Well, so first, just responding to the, the other point you made, um, this is an economic development opportunity. And I think that's a really, really important thing to point out to um, to policymakers and, and, you know, advocates and everyone in this space. So Massachusetts, for example, saw that that in two years after they implemented the initial organic waste ban here, they saw um, 500 new jobs created they, they calculated wow. 900 total jobs supported um, and $175 million in new revenue just by treating food as a resource, just wow. by not throwing it away. So I think that is like staggering. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of the other states that have been documenting their progress have seen a huge amount, like I think in Rhode Island, um, which also has a, an organic waste ban, yes. the amount of food composted jumped from 500 tons annually to 4,000 tons. So when we when we divert that food and it becomes compost, then you suddenly have a new resource that you can sell. That's or right. if it goes to anaerobic digestion, that creates energy. You know, so um, so I think it does 
as you say, cost money up front to get things moving, um, but that money seems to be well invested in terms of the return to the states. Um, but I think you're right. You know, there's really been a lot of variability in terms of how well states have funded implementation of these kinds of programs. So uh, Massachusetts, when they created the organic waste ban here, um, put out along with it a bunch of different grants that could be used to develop capacity. Right. Um, there's a little bit of federal funding, but not nearly what's needed. Um, right. And I think this actually earlier uh, or last spring, we released a U.S. food waste policy action plan along with World Wildlife Fund, um, NRDC and Refed, and with about 60 different signatories, which were kind of companies, local government, nonprofits. And we, we recommend a whole bunch of things that, that Congress and the administration can do to really um, try to achieve our national food waste reduction goal. Right. But the first recommendation we had in the entire plan was um, for the federal government to support states enacting these proven policies to reduce food waste in landfills. So like these organic waste bans, waste diversion requirements, landfill taxes, um, anything that makes it more costly to send food to the landfill, um, you know, these have shown real impact. And I think there's just a cost that states will have to bear or, or localities have to bear. Um, so in that, we recommend actually like $650 million to be put forward um, for states and localities to implement these proven strategies. Um, the proposal was incorporated into a bill that was introduced in the fall, the Zero Food Waste Act, and actually... Mm -hmm. With less money, but the you know very similar language was was part was included in Build Back Better. Um, of course, it's unclear where that is going, but I think right. that there's a real growing recognition that this that it's going to take a really big investment, and that um, that might be difficult for for states. In addition, I will say like there's both the cost of the infrastructure and also the cost of enforcement, and I think the latter is also a place where states have said you know, we're going to put this in place, but we don't really have the money to hire staff to go around and actually make sure that businesses are complying. And I know that's been a source of frustration for the businesses that are complying too. Right, right. I, I actually was going to ask you about that next. It was like, you know, great, you put these regulations on the books, but then how the hell do you enforce them? I mean, yes, I know. We're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop and we will be right back with Emily Broad-Lieb from uh, the Harvard Law School Food Law and Policy Clinic. So stay tuned for that. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org conference. 
That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. So, Emily, enacting food policy means convincing legislators that food waste is a concern from multiple perspectives. Not only the human need, but then we have the environmental, which you and I haven't even touched on yet, but it is a huge environmental impact. And, of course, the economic, uh, the economics of food waste. It's absolutely crazy how much money we're flushing down the toilet. So, But given the polarization of our politics, in particular, uh, for example, the failure to address climate change <clears throat> and the widespread food insecurity, <clears throat> which um, I was told by a member of Congress uh, by the name of Thomas K. Massey from Kentucky, uh, that why the food companies have it all under control. We don't have anything to worry about in terms of food insecurity. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not coming on your radio program. Um, Anyway, uh, with people like that in office, um, you know, how how are we, (laughs) what are the, what do you feel are the most significant barriers to driving meaningful change in the food waste category? Like how are we going to basically educate these yahoos that this is something that they need to not only take seriously, but enact legislation around? So, yeah, (laughs) I will say my perspective on it actually is, um, so food waste, food recovery is, a, is is the biggest thing we work on that, I, you know, personally, I spend my time on. I have about six people on my team. This is our biggest area. But we work on a bunch of other things. And I will say that actually, compared to the other issues in food, um, food waste, food recovery are, um, I think, at the most kind of bipartisan support. Um, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that, you know, we're able to get everything across the finish line, but I do think that it seems like an easier lift than some of the other things we've worked on. Like, um, you know, we've been looking at the issues with like debt relief for socially disadvantaged farmers, which is like a hugely controversial and, you know, uh, issue that's found its way into the courts. Um, I think the big issues really, one is, uh, you know, the investment of money. So I talked about that. I think when we look across, you know, I would say there's, um, maybe six or seven policies that we're really focused on. And this comes actually from the global work that we've done. So we're right now in 20 different countries, we're working with food banks and then through them also with government and food businesses. And we're really, uh, when we started out, we picked five very different countries And we looked at, like, what are the top issues that we hear from um, food donors, food banks and government with, you know, with regard to food recovery. And we've really followed those those top six issues, seven issues across different countries. Um, So in almost all of them, I think we can get good support. I think the problem is the ones that require money. um, There's a lot of folks in line waiting for funding for things. So where we need to build infrastructure for, um, you know, diverting waste or for, um, you know, when you think about food donation, it requires trucks and storage facilities and places to process some of that food into other shelf stable or, or you know, value added things that don't that aren't going to spoil so quickly. Um, so that's an issue. Um, but I think there's there is a lot of shared interest. And I will say too, a couple of the bills that we saw come out on food waste just in the end of last year had bipartisan sponsorship. So there was the Food Date Labeling Act, which was introduced um, in the House and Senate. And I think the House version is bipartisan. And then there was also an act related to liability protection that was bipartisan in both in both House and Senate. So there's there's 
you know, I think we're getting there. We're, we're, good. we're well, that's no very one likes to waste food. No one right. thinks it's a good thing. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's good to hear that there that legislators across uh, both uh, sides of the aisle are actually paying attention to this. I I want to I want to talk a little bit about the money involved in the aggregation and packaging and stuff. But let's let's just remind people of the Bill Emerson Good Food uh, Good Samaritan Food Donation Act because, as you said at the top of the show, I think most people are unaware of this. And to you know, I want to talk a little bit about about corporate um, you know corporate institutional grocery store donations and why, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, a lot of these corporations that could be donating food don't really want to because of the liability issues they think that they might face. So just, you know, take people through quickly the what that act says. And um, and also, I, I, you know, I found it somewhat loose and like apparently wholesome uh, donating in good faith. Like, how, how do you ensure uh, best practices when it comes to being a food aid organization and you're getting food from a local institution and, you know, how does the Bill Emerson um, Act both protect and also hopefully uh, ensure best practices when it comes to mm-hmm. food donation? Yeah. So this act is, is you know, in its time was incredibly innovative. It was, you know, the first one globally that was, um, you know, we passed it in 1996. What mm-hmm. the act does is it says, Food donors and food recovery organizations such as like food banks or, you know, whoever that nonprofit organization is that's getting the food and then distributing it are protected from any civil or criminal liability, um, meaning, you know, someone gets sick and, you know, from the food and sues them, they are, they have a, a immunity from that litigation. So long as they um, don't act with uh, gross negligence or intentional conduct, so you know, if you look at the food, you're like, oh, there's a razor blade in there. I'm going to pass it on anyway. Well, that is not protected. <laughs> if you, you know, if there's something like really or it's a mess, moldy, yeah, you know. if it's really a mess, then you, you know, you wouldn't be able to receive that protection, which I think is really important. You know, the food also has to meet all food safety rules. Um, and it also must go through a nonprofit organization and the nonprofit must give it uh, away for free. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Um, I think you are also completely right that when you look at the law, I mean, it was, you know, it's meant to be really comprehensive, but it's about a page and a half. And -hmm. it has a whole bunch of terms like this food must be apparently wholesome and it must be donated in good faith. Um, And unlike so many other laws that when they're enacted, Congress then says, you know, X, Y or Z federal agency is going to write rules or regulations to explain this bill. Uh, the Emerson Act never had that. So all we have for 22 years is, you know, no, 24 years, excuse me, is this, you know, this one and a half page kind of right. thing produced by Congress. Obviously, no one in Congress can answer questions about it. Um, so uh, I think this is a really big barrier to the act really seeing um, its full impact. Um, so one thing, there was a legislation introduced last year called the Food Donation Improvement Act, which was introduced in the House and the Senate. It's bipartisan and it does a couple things. But one of the most important things it does is that it would require USDA, uh, the Department of Agriculture, to write regulations explaining these questions in the act and, and you know, kind of making it clear once and for all for businesses what those protections mean, what they can and can't do. Um And the other things that the act does is kind of just making 
adding a little bit more protection for different types of donation. So one thing that it would do is, um, as I mentioned right now, you're only protected as a food business if you donate to a nonprofit who then distributes it. That's great. That's where the bulk of donations go. But what right. we saw, especially during during COVID and things like that, is, you know, like a restaurant at the end of the night has three or four extra plates of chicken. No food bank is going to come pick up four plates of chicken. Right. Um, so, there, so, you know, not actually also having protection when food is given directly to those in need um, can make it, you know, can kind of create some some rub at the margins um, and then the other thing that ACT would do is that um, it would also protect donation to a nonprofit that not only gives the food away for free, but also nonprofit that sells it at a low price. Uh, and I think this is where you might see more uh, sustainability in the food recovery sector. That if you think about right now, nonprofits have to not only run around picking up all the donated food, but also have to go get um, funding to actually pay their staff and their drivers and get vehicles and, you know, equipment. Absolutely. Uh, so this would allow them to actually sell food at a very low price that just covers the cost of handling and distributing the food. Oh, very interesting, Emily. That's, that is fascinating because it does. I mean, just to, to be clear for, for, for a corporate donor or a grocery store, or you know, any kind of institutional dining facility, whatever, there's a lot that goes into those standard operating procedures of making a donation to a food bank. Um, you know, it has to be labeled. It has to stay in the cold chain. It has to be transported. It has to be packaged. You know, you got to have the, the the cartons or the pallets or whatever it is that you need. And all of that stuff costs money too. And that, that again, would be a policy issue really, right? Um, to, you know, find a way to allocate funds or, or you know, uh, create some sort of policy framework where companies would have the opportunity, as you just suggested, that they could charge at a very low cost or whatever. And that's something, by the way, you know, this sort of dovetails in with my last question for you, which is like in Denmark, I happen to know this woman, just right randomly, um, who started this company called We Food, and they take surplus groceries that are, you know, past their sell-by date or produce that isn't looking as fabulous as it. And it goes to another store and it gets sold at drastically reduced prices. So um, we don't have anything like that in this country. And I'm wondering like, what, where do we stand? Like you've mentioned several times that you've been working with in tandem with other countries on their processes and their uh, initiatives to reclaim food. Where, do, where does the United States stand um, in terms of what some of these other countries are doing? I mean, France is banned throwing away food from grocery stores. You can't do that anymore. So, but we don't have that here. Grocery stores, I'm sure, dump food by the truckload, right? Yeah. So what, what, how does the United States measure up? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think we have a long way to go. I mean, if I look <laughs> at the UK in particular, the EU wide, they are blowing us out of the water. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're taking steps. I think we talked about, um, so the French law, that is not that dissimilar from the new law in California that we talked about and some of these state rules that are banning food going to landfill or requiring donation. Um, so, you know, we're getting there piece by piece at the kind of state and local level. Uh, but like as far as just kind of a you know bigger um, investment of resources and sort of prioritizing this, I think we're we're taking steps. Our federal agencies, the you know EPA, USDA, and FDA have have created this federal interagency collaboration on food waste. Um, one thing that I would love to see is that that was 
was just kind of administratively created, it would be lovely to have Congress say, okay, thank you for showing this can be done. We really want you to have a mandate to work on these issues together and to report on them and to make progress over time. Um, you know, not a nice to have, a must have. Um, but, right. you know, I think, I think that it's an amazing area where we can really learn a lot from some of the peer countries. Um, on the Denmark example you mentioned too, I think for us, standardizing and clarifying date labels, if right now it's not clear what food can be eaten after the date, it, it makes it really difficult for health inspectors to allow things like this, which sell surplus past date food. Right. Um, and I think that that's kind of, you know, again, there's there's so much richness here in like the ways that government at the state and local level, but also at the federal level can really build a supportive environment that this, you know, that helps us achieve these goals. Absolutely. Well, I, listen, I, th- I guess we'll wrap it up there um, because I could go on and on and, and hopefully you'll be back and we could talk about this some more because um, uh, this is like this is a major thing. We didn't even talk about the environmental impacts of food waste, which are enormous. Um, I know that's not perhaps your uh, your uh, wheelhouse or whatever that expression is. I can say um, a quick word on them. But yes, like, go I right think, ahead. Do yeah, it. it's OK. Because I think it's, it is really important. So on the climate side, globally, we know that food waste contributes about eight to 10 percent of, um, you know, the climate emissions that we're trying to avoid. Right. Um, you know, food, the other big issue people don't realize is that we're using so much natural resources. We're like 20 percent of our water goes to water crops that we then throw in the trash. Right. And then food ends up being the number one um, component in landfills. So in Massachusetts, actually, our organic waste ban here started from the fact that we're running out of landfill space and more than 20% of the landfill was just made up of food. Yes, that is exactly the same case here in Rhode Island. I think we have about nine years left um, of, you know, space in our local landfills in the state of Rhode Island, which as everybody knows is the smallest state in the union. Not a lot of, not a lot of land there <laughs> to be filling, if you know what I mean. So yeah, no, that is, it, it is an imperative. I mean, I, you know, folks out in Wyoming or Iowa or whatever, you know, they don't really have to think about it quite the same with the same urgency. And yet those are the farm belt, you know, the farm belt countries and uh, uh, states in particular, it seems to me, should be especially vigilant about this, uh, because after all, uh, those natural resources that you just mentioned, like water and soil, um, are you know, basically being uh, tossed into landfill along with the groceries that they produce. So, you know, very distressing. All right. So this is your opportunity now to promote yourself shamelessly and your organization. Where can people learn more about Emily Broadlieb and your work uh, on food policy and food waste in particular? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things I think I mentioned before, we uh, we worked this last year on a U.S. food waste policy action plan, which is really great. And I think that if folks are really trying to get, um, you know, a snapshot of what are the top policies that have some amount of broad-based support, we have a lot of signatories. So it's at foodwasteactionplan.org. Cool. Our website has a ton of stuff too. So um, now for more than a decade, we've been providing assistance to businesses, governments, and nonprofits interested in reducing food waste. So that includes both like fact sheets on how, you know, on current laws, we've done um, a number of, you know, fact sheet explainers for more than 20 states now, um, and then also different policy recommendations and tools and things like that. So that's on our website, which is... Um, Uh, If you Google Food Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School, you will find your way there. And then I think the last one to mention is that at the global level, we are working with the Global Food Banking Network on 
what's called the Global Food Donation Policy Atlas. And this is where we have a lot of comparative data across countries. And I think it has been an amazing project. We're now um, also putting out different policy issue briefs on like one issue. So for example, on date labels, looking at 15 different countries, what are the best practices? How do we get there? Um, and that's at atlas.foodbanking.org. So those are, I think, the top three things that I think will get people started. And um, we are also here to help, um, you know, different, we partner with all different stakeholders to really help them understand the laws better and try to improve them. Fantastic. Emily, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. I do hope you'll come back. This is a lot of fun. I like it when people laugh and make jokes and stuff like that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> like, you know, the wonk thing is like great, but you know, come on, we got to have a few giggles along the way, right? So um, please do join me again soon. And uh, thanks so much to my sponsor for this episode. And uh, we'll be back next week with another uh, ish iteration of What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Stay tuned for that. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>